episode 64 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 23rd of May 2019. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Hello. And Graham. Hello. Yes, no Will, he's got some family shit to deal with, so you're stuck with just the three of us again. And we're recording a bit early because you two are going travelling and things, so what is it, Thursday night now when we'd normally do it on Monday, so forgive us if anything breaks news-wise between now and release. Um, but yeah, what's this? Oh, a bit of plasma news for a change, Phelan. What do you mean? <laughs> um, yeah, it's just a, a minor update from one of the developers that was talking about uh, the upcoming uh, version of Frameworks and Plasma. Um, WireGuard support is coming out in the next one, thanks to Network Manager 1.16. And they, while they did have WireGuard in the last one, in um, 5.15, they... It had changed the way it worked. It used to be like a VPN connection, but now they've made it connection type. So it kind of changes the functionality and how it has to generate the connections and all that. I've not tried it, but I am looking forward to it because VPNs are pain in the arse and WireGuard looks so nice and so simple in inverted commas um, that, you know, it's bound to be a far more reliable one than things like um, FreeSwan and all those. Well, OpenVPN is your kind of standard one, but apparently WireGuard is massively simpler. And instead of being client-server based, it's peer-to-peer. So yeah, beautiful. even though you can have a centralized server, essentially, it's all peer-to-peer connections, and apparently it's just really, really easy. Yeah, it's only, it's only a few thousand lines of code in the kernel itself. So, I mean, you know, that can be audited, whereas God knows how many horrific various demons that need to be run for all the other ones, you know, when they were written, just the amount of knowledge and change in practices that we've done in between then with all the various security vulnerabilities so isn't isn't this the one where linus praised the quality of the code and how simple it was yeah yeah and that's the i mean that's we don't often talk about it but a big problem with security is how complicated it is to install or maintain and things the certificates and where you have to put them in something like open vpn and then you forget about it and then you forget how it's configured it really is difficult yeah well what with the filth ban coming in in july <laughs> uh I'm going to have loads of people asking me about it, so I probably should uh, bone up on it. (laughs) 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 And I should learn about WireGuard, though, because it sounds like it's just so much fucking easier than trying to piss around with OpenVPN. So it's on my agenda, definitely. But this isn't just KDE, is it? This is Network Manager across all of the uh, desktops. It is, um, but ironically, this will be the first user interface to it, apparently. So now here's your final fucking excuse to use KDE. Go on, give it a go, then. (laughs) Um, but they've added a few other uh, VPN protocols. Uh, the Pan Global Protect VPN, never even heard of it, but maybe it's good. And uh, One Time Pass features as well. So they've gone in there too. So there's a lot of handy things there. And one of the interesting ones is Remote Desktop with Wayland, which was looking to be difficult at the time due to security features of Wayland, which are obviously a good thing, but it was preventing them from all the current tools from working. So they've done some work on that. Yeah, it sounds like they're compositing like the K remote frame buffer on on what you'd use as the server and then push that through VNC just like you might with a normal X remote desktop and then viewing it on the client using an ordinary KRDC the normal kind of remote desktop client on KDE. Really interesting to try it. Yeah, and there's a there's a quick video of it there. I mean, it's a bit basic at the moment. I think only mouse is working right now, but uh, obviously it's well in the way, so it's looking good. Wayland is getting better and closer every day by the seams of it. 
Do you use remote desktops much? I love the idea and I have, there have been times when I've really needed to, but recently I've just got away with using a terminal. It never worked well enough for me to rely on it. So I always end up making sort of access via SSH and then like running a server on the box if I needed to pull a file, you know, like daft mm. sort of solutions where you're like, I could browse it remotely as a web page if I really need to see stuff there. Yeah. Nasty, nasty hacks. But the only thing I do use it for is sometimes I will have a lot of test dev boxes that I run via KVM. Yes. And I can kick those off and remote into them through SSH and, you know, run a remote session that way. I mean, it's not technically um, the same thing, I guess, uh, but it is, I guess, a VNC session to it. Because they're headless, effectively. They are headless, yeah. So, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, that's brilliant. That's There's nothing better than, like, kicking off a remote install and you see the install wizard pop up on the server yeah. install and off you go and then test out your thing and then blow it away again. It's great. So, uh Okay, itinerary now, 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 which ironically I shall be using tomorrow. Um, anybody who's not tried this, I I tried it in KML. My flight tickets came in for Aer Lingus, and because I contributed my ticket from a previous flight, they were able to implement the barcode stuff, and uh, I had a nice little click button in my email, and uh, it stored it in both calendar entries for my a uh, arrival and return flight. So uh, yeah, happy days. But uh, they go into a bit more here about the barcodes and all the data that's there. And essentially, project is still ongoing. Lots of work going on. And uh, yeah, you should contribute if you have not already, if you can help them. The Via Rail Canadian Railway and uh, the Finnish VR company are two that they're having trouble with right now. So if you can. Are you confident enough to have that as your only copy of the barcode when you're traveling? Uh, oh, I still print out the paper PDF because I, I just I just don't trust that <laughs> something like I'll, I'll lose my phone in a toilet or yeah, God knows what. I've goes, never done just... that, but you know, it'd just be the bloody one time. So uh, yeah, no, I because obviously I can't install the app because I love freedom so much that I want to be inconvenienced to myself all the time. <laughs> so uh, let evolution deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> So what's this other one? Uh, Elisa? Elisa? Elisa, yeah. So they knew, or, well, one of the contenders for a new media player for uh, taking over after Amarok on KDE, because that does really appear to have died to death. I mean, there was talk of someone kicking it back off again, but not really sure that's gone anywhere. Um, I mean, I still use it. It's great, but it would be nice to have something that's kind of developed on. And uh, Elisa 0.4 is coming out, and there's quite a good few things in that, like... Um, libvlc so all the beautiful codecs that they've got access to all become in party mode uh playlist work and um you know better memory usage and things like that as well and uh embedded lyrics and covers that are in there as well and a android mode which i thought was quite interesting so they are still trying to push a lot of apps towards being uh, small screen usable so and this is one of them as well so they're using either Kirigami 2 and things like that to try improve the phone versions of them fair enough well no one cares about your ancient Good. KDE desktop <laughs> it's all about the the modern XFCE 4.14 which has had the first pre-release which I haven't actually tried yet I was planning to but then we recorded early and I don't know it's probably not going to be that much different but it is um, 
<laughs> no, it's it's fairly different, really. There's a pretty good blog post, anyway. Is there an entire new color that you're able to choose for your background <laughs> wallpaper? Is it off black or or what is it? Look, there are tons of improvements. It's it's small iterations. It's not like massive fuck you changes. It's like let's just make that a little bit better and let's make that a little bit better, very very slowly, so you don't even notice. But um, yeah, it's good to see some progress happening with it. It's been ticking along. Is that called creeping modernization? Yeah, isn't exactly. It? Early stages cancer. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you refer to my beloved XFCE that way? But um, yeah, so XFCE is very much not dead. And I've known that for a long time anyway. There's, there's active development going on, but uh, you know, it's not massively exciting to most people. So let's not dwell too much on it. But yes, stick a link in the show notes if you're interested. All right, well, let's get into the more serious news of the last couple of weeks. Um, let's start with Huawei and how Trump, the orange leader, shall we say, has just fucked up the whole world and is going to start World War Three, as far as I can see, <laughs> starting with this trade war with China, which is now... Um, just fucked Huawei. He's forced Google to tell them, uh, yeah, you can't use Android anymore. You can use AOSP, but there's no Google apps to be had. And um, you've got a few months to kind of get your updates out. And then after that, you cut off any new phones or whatever. You can go and fuck yourself. And there's rumors that Microsoft's going to do the same. And Huawei are just, well, knackered, really. They have got their own... Um, home-grown operating system that they've been working on for a while, but as we know, that's not easy to do. So what do we think about this then? Let's try and um, temper our disdain for the the glorious leader of the US. Yeah, it's huge. My first instinct is that I don't think it'll be catastrophic. Um, It may... I think they're going to have to stick with their OSP I think stick with Android or the open source version of Android, and and basically they have their own stores and all that kind of infrastructure for China. They're just going to have to find a way of setting up, you know, a, a, a Western base for the, a new app update platform. I think if the if the business is if they if they're going to chase the business. But it's not just about the, the app store and platform. It's about the actual apps as well, because presumably Facebook, Instagram. Mm. All of the big stuff that people actually want is not going to be available. Does it mean tech companies abandoning the states? No, surely not. If you're based in America, then you can't just abandon that market. No, I think you're just going to end up with web apps or something, maybe. Just, you know, web wrappers for... Hmm. Um, this actually might turn out to be very good news that instead of having to use bullshit proprietary apps, they'll work, make their websites work properly and we'll be able to not have to install apps. Yeah, that's a really good point. I know that you don't use any Google stuff ever, Phelan, so you're not affected by this, but you can't be blind to the fact that most of the world does. Oh, it doesn't make them right, though, does it? Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, okay, I, I can see that this is uh, obviously a bit of a disaster for Huawei. Now, the really scary thing was the chip manufacturers. That was more scary than uh, Google, if you ask me, because if you have the likes of ARM now not being allowed, and then you have uh, Zilix and uh, what's the other processor manufacturer? I can't remember their name. They're all being told to not sell to them as well. I think that's slightly more scary because, I mean, then what do you start building? You're not going to develop your own hardware anytime soon. Software, yeah, you might have something on the go and you might be working away on it, but if you can't get a Qualcomm or Intel chip in there, 
I think that's far more damaging. What about Risk Five or MIPS, though? That's <laughs> yeah, yeah. What about that? Yeah, H- how's that working out? Have you got one yet? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But could this be the catalyst that drives it forward? You never know. Yeah. But I mean, whatever they do, it'll take years, and I'm sure they'll come back and they'll protect themselves against this ever happening again, which will likely mean another closed platform for them and for us and for everybody else in between. But what about their laptops? Like, is it the MateBook or something? that is running Windows 10 at the moment, but maybe that'll be running GNU slash Linux soon. So maybe that'll be good. Yeah, but I mean, that's going to be using a US processor manufacturer. So, I mean, unless they change that over to something homegrown as well, where do you go from there? I mean, also, is this feasible that the US carries on like this? Is it, it could, if the new president is elected next year, could this all be revoked and maybe people will bank on that happening? Because this, from a business perspective, is going to be catastrophic for US IP as well, isn't it? Well, I mean, his heart might explode from all the cheeseburgers, but <laughs> he's definitely going to win next time. So we're going to have at least another... Do you think? Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I really don't know, but I mean... Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I did predict that he wouldn't get in in the first place. So... Uh, I'm, I'm going, yes, we're definitely going to have a hard Brexit and we're definitely going to have Trump for another four years. And so then that won't happen and I'll be happy. Ah, uh, I see what you're doing there. Okay. <laughs> as long as the universe isn't cutting on to that as well. The scary thing is that Americans are actually happy about him and think he's doing a great job. I mean, I spoke to someone on the plane and like, ah, uh, at least half of them do. And even the ones who are directly affected by this, because, uh, you know, people who live in America are victims of this trade war and you know like they're the ones who have to buy machinery and stuff and you know let's not forget Apple here because if China cuts off Apple then they're fucked man that is a massive market for them and it's going to cost them billions of dollars, which is going to cost the U.S. taxpayer a bit. Well, actually, no, Apple doesn't pay much tax. None of the tech giants <laughs> do. But either way, it's not good for the um, the U.S. economy, is it? So it's just oh, it's just childish protectionism. It's very worst. Like when you're a kid, you think like, oh, well, that's the way to solve the country's problems. Let's just charge lows for exports. And you're just not thinking through the consequences of it, which just fucks everyone in your own country. Oh, we're in danger of turning this into a political podcast here, but fucking get a grip, America, honestly. And not to mention the fact that this could escalate further, what with the tensions in Iran and everything, into like and Russia and all that. You've got cl- clearly two axes developing for what could be a third world war. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's all just fucked, man. I just don't know. I, I, it can't last forever, surely. This is only going to be for a few months and then it'll all get sorted out and they can just go back to selling phones with proper Android with all the proprietary Google goodness. Okay, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Go to do.co slash LNL and you can get $50 credit with 30 days to use it. DigitalOcean offers VMs or droplets, as they call them, in data centers all over the world with really fast network and really fast SSDs. And you can choose from one of the distros that they offer, like Ubuntu, Fedora, Debian, and CentOS, or FreeBSD, or you can use your own custom image. And you can take those distros and build them up exactly how you want. Remember, you've got complete root access to these. Or you can go for one of their one-click apps, like LAMP and LEMP stacks, and WordPress, Discourse, GitLab. And these droplets start from as little as $5 a month, and they scale all the way up to huge amounts of RAM and huge numbers of CPU cores, so you can deploy exactly how much you need for the application that you're using. If you need more storage, they've got block storage and object storage, which is really easy to attach to your droplet, 
and just get going straight away. I've talked about their Kubernetes offering before, but recently they've announced that it's now generally available and they're making improvements to it all the time, so do check that out. They have cloud firewalls, so you can block network traffic before it even gets to your VM, amazing backups, and a great Teams feature that allows multiple people to work on one droplet without having to share passwords. So go to do.co slash LNL, get your $50 credit, and get started. That's do.co slash LNL. So right, Phelan, let's be uh, really smug, shall we, or you can be anyway, about the recent build that you did with your AMD CPU that isn't affected. I did. Ha 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 ha. Na 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 na. My processor's not affected and yours is. Yeah, this is Zombie Lord, which is yet another speculative execution attack or vulnerability. And um, the, well, there's, it's actually three vulnerabilities in one, but they've been grouped together. And one of the, the biggest ways you can mitigate this is disabling hyperthreading. So, uh, yeah, that's not going to cause any slowdowns or anything, is it? No, not at all. Uh, you see some data centers must be absolutely getting crucified by this, like crucified, because, you know, the margins there are fairly small. If you're running loads of VMs, I mean, that's literal workloads of a, an entire VM that's getting chucked out each time that you, you're affected by this type of stuff. They must be crucified for this year. Have you seen any of it in your work then? Any um, kind of negative impact from it? Uh, no, not overly. I, to be honest, I'm not sure I want to look either because, I mean, what, what do you do? <laughs> you say, well, okay, now we're using more processor. Great. That's, that's that eating away. I mean, AMD is not affected by this one, but, I mean, it's not like they're completely scot-free on other stuff anyway. Um, and, you know, you just have to look at the processor designs where they obviously try to race each other to the hilt and you know at some point this has obviously gone terribly terribly wrong and i don't know how we're ever going to get out this to actually get decent spec machines again i mean because they can fix these things but every time they seem to fix something wait two three months and then something more brutal comes out yeah i mean this isn't the first one since spectrum meltdown this is just the the biggest one since then and it's quite bad as well i mean you know, you have no idea knowing if someone has affected you by this type of thing. Uh, is it in the wild? They haven't a clue either, you know, and it doesn't appear to be terribly hard to do. I mean, I'm sure with a lot of these things, it's, you know, the amount of times that you can hit the memory and stuff that you can get something to pop out. But I mean, we all know how crafted these guys are going to be to get this stuff out of there. So it's going to be weaponized at some point, no doubt. Yeah. And it mostly affects shared hosting environments, doesn't it? Yeah. The modern equivalent of that, where you've got loads of VMs running on one machine it's not really going to affect you on your desktop at home or your laptop because unless you've got loads of different people using it or you know loads of untrusted code i mean it might affect you potentially maybe but realistically it's not going to and red hat their advice is you've got to look at your workload you've got to look and and do a risk assessment is it worth this massive performance here and in some cases it is but i think in a lot of places realistically it's just not going to be, is it? And I mean, if you think about where, if you're paying licenses by CPU or by core and you're losing like a quarter to half of your processing power, you're essentially paying for licenses that you don't get anymore. Like, you don't get that performance. So you're actually, you're, you're being stung in that sort of way as well. So yeah, it's, you would have to question whether you can get away with it or not. It's like the, it's the end of Moore's law, isn't it? It is starting to feel that way. Yeah. But surely they'll come up with some other way to stay ahead of the game and keep going. I don't know. It does make me think that um, 
if they weren't so locked down, then maybe we wouldn't have this problem. If we did have, I don't want to bang on too much about Risk Five, but here we go again. I will. <laughs> like if if everything was like this open instruction set that everyone knew what was going on with it, then this stuff would get spotted far sooner, and we wouldn't have got like ten generations in or whatever it is to these, um, you know, Intel processors with all of these core features that make them run super fast before realizing, hang on, we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to sound too much like Eric S. Raymond, but this is the kind of disruption that, you know, where things like RISC-V do kind of bubble up and begin to take over. It's exactly the kind of vacuum left by performance affecting security breaches that give other underdogs the chance, which may ultimately be a good thing. Maybe, but I think it's more likely that AMD are going to do well out of this, this short term at least. Because if you are looking to do a new data center deployment and you're looking at the cost versus performance and then you have to take out the hyper-threading stuff and you know, do the calculations of whatever your application is and you know, inter- implementing these mitigations, then it might actually make more sense to go AMD rather than for Xeons or whatever. So maybe they'll do well. Well, I hope so too. I hope it kind of evens the playing field. Yeah, hopefully. So NextCloud and Nitro Key have joined forces Yes, they have, and it looks pretty sweet. So the beauty of this is it's made in Europe. So if you're European, you can feel somewhat more <laughs> protected by the fact that only the French, German, Danish, British, no, definitely not the Irish guys will be spying on you. But you know, at least this way you can get some two-factor auth goodness going with Nextcloud. Yeah, because the Nitro key is um, it's like a YubiKey, but completely open source, right? Yeah, and and made in Germany, so there's less chance of it being hijacked on the way. Yeah, none of those dirty Chinese have had their hands on it. Eh? <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, who cares, honestly? But um, well, as long as it's totally open source, then that's the the main thing. And so, yeah, now you can have um, passwordless login to Nextcloud, which is pretty nice. Yeah, and the, the, they're actually working with um, the you know web off end standard that we had looked at. Oh God, I don't know when it was. It was almost two years ago, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's tied into that, and they're they're looking at FIDO two, which is one that's coming up in future. So yeah, they're working together with Nextcloud and that. So they're going to keep going. And I half suspect that this is a lot to do with those government contracts that Nextcloud is going for. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think it's good. I mean. I was looking to get one of these devices or, or one of these type devices and I kind of like the idea of this one getting made nearby. Um, so I might actually go and get one and they're pretty good price for the one that looks halfway decent, which is about 50 quid. Well, me and Graham would better get one while we still can, eh? No, that's it. Yeah, no export license to you outer towners. Get out of here. <laughs> and uh, they've also teamed up with Gen 2 as well, which is pretty funny. It was pretty funny. Apparently, it still is going, so that's good. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, a quick uh, catch-up from last time, then. Google have clarified the situation with this Works for Nest shutdown. You say clarified. I did not understand this very well. Well, Graham, you're the one who's affected by it. Are you any clearer? Yeah, so the last episode, we mentioned that the um, Nest, which was like home automation thermostats and cameras mostly, was bought by Google ages ago. Works with Nest was a way of any one of us actually getting API keys and scripting our own solutions and monitoring our own hardware. Google's closing down Works with Nest and closing down all the things that rely on it subsequently. So 
in particular uh, Amazon's Alexa, but also if this then that, which um, people used with works with Nest to construct all their own kind of rules for if you walk out the house, for example, turn the heating off or put the hot water on or whatever you want. So all of that was going to be closed down in favour of Google's own walled garden, its own Google Assistant, and its own closed APIs where presumably developers will, they won't be so free with the API keys and go through all the usual Google ratification and security audits and all that kind of stuff. Um, IoT could potentially be huge, and it's become so encumbered by big corporations' self-interest and pushing everything through their own cloud infrastructure. Nest was interesting in that it had this kind of open API to start off with. And of course, Google, that were once the good guys in this kind of domain, prove again that they're not willing to trust or willing to take the risk on the ramifications of people being able to have access to the APIs and do their own things. And so this clarification supposedly says, okay, we're not going to close down at the end of August or whatever the date is. You'll still be able to use the API keys that you've got with Works and Nest until you've migrated everything over to your Google accounts. Um, and even then, things like if this, then that support won't work. And they say they're working with Amazon to bring in Alexa support. So it's a bit of a messy, horrible statement, as far as I can tell. Well, Stormont calls it the Internet of Stings, and he's never wrong, is he? It is so disappointing. I mean, not this story particularly, but just in general, the fact that I feel like it's really being held back by so many self-interested parties. Not, you know, It's like the MIDI standard back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> Do tell us more. I hear there's a MIDI 2 standard now as well. Can you tell us about that too? <laughs> Please don't, please don't. I'll have to fade you out with loads of reverb like you used to do on uh, the other show. Surely it'd be like synth overdubs or something, given it's MIDI. Uh, if there only there was a way for people to reverse engineer nests and then put them on GitHub and then get paid for their work somehow. Yes, yeah, so you're talking about GitHub sponsors. Now, I haven't read about this because I was too busy having a, a weak, belated Eurovision party today. Uh, don't ask. She was away, whatever. Anyway, no spoilers. So tell me about this GitHub sponsors thing, someone. So I think, I must admit, I've not read a huge amount on it. I've read comments on it, mostly. Um, this isn't available yet, but this is basically an, an initiative um, brought about by Microsoft-owned GitHub to fund open source projects on GitHub in a way that you can... It's easily integrated into the platform. You can effectively star the projects that you want to sponsor. It's like a monthly fee. For the first year, Microsoft is not going to charge anything for the transactions, and it's not going to charge what I assume will be a percentage after the first year, in the same way maybe Patreon works. And they're also going to match um, donations to open source projects to a certain amount that I can't remember. So it's basically like Patreon integrated into GitHub to be able to support the open source projects that you want to, with all of the caveats that that brings about with a Microsoft source code hosted system. Embraced the uh, the micropayments system, and they're going to extend <laughs> matching funding to it, and then extinguish the other guys. <sighs> The GitHub comments are quite entertaining. We definitely have to link to those because a lot of people aren't overly impressed by it, which you kind of have to see their point. Like they're, they're not contributing to a payment system that already exists. They're making their own, thereby tying into GitHub even more. Um, some people have said that there might be ways to link to a, you know, external payment provider, but I don't know how integrated that will be. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. It, uh, is it them becoming evil now? The first thing it says to me is that it's, it's a reminder that we've kind of failed. I mean, I think in, in, we, the open source community, I think we've talked about this for a long time, a decade or more. How do we help open source projects? How do we fund the projects that we want to fund? Um, you know, places, projects like Arda have their own system. They found works, but everything is kind of disparate and difficult to navigate and nothing has effectively succeeded, which is why, you know, the opportunity is there for uh, Microsoft and GitHub to do this and maybe be successful at it. And I don't think we've got enough time really to do this subject justice because what does it mean for the projects that are sponsored? What does it mean that they're on GitHub? Will they be able to, you know, pivot to um, Patreon, what kind of effect will it have on development? I really don't know. Yeah, I need to read a lot more about this. I've only read just very brief headlines and skimmed a few comments and stuff. So yeah, I'm going to reserve judgment on it. Um, but uh, my instincts tell me it's probably not a great thing. But then it can't be any worse than Patreon, can it? So, uh, Well, what happens if you're working on an open source project? It just happens to be hosted on GitHub and you start receiving some kind of monthly income for the work. You're going to be more motivated to put effort in, I'd have thought. I, I did see quite a funny comment to that very thing where he says, and then some of them fall away and they're not happy. And then <laughs> and then you think, oh, maybe that's nothing. And I'll just keep going. And But then even more fall away because you didn't stick to some promise. And then all your funding goes away. And now you don't care. And then you tried to make it an, a fully open project. And that's what you should have done first. But by now it's all burned. <laughs> I think the projects have to remain open source. Uh, don't work for your hobby because you'll soon start to hate it. <laughs> I'm having a great time doing this. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, this episode is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com and they are a Linux-based computer seller based here in the UK. And they ship computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate 18.04 and 18.10. And they've got a huge range of laptops from affordable ones that are good for browsing and email and office tasks all the way up to huge powerhouses with even desktop components in them that you can do gaming, graphic design, 3D art, video editing, machine learning, all sorts. They've also got some desktops and servers, and almost everything's configurable, so you can tweak it to be exactly what you want. And if you can't find something that's exactly right for your needs, then do get in contact with them, and they can sort you out a custom order. They're very approachable and great at communicating. They ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And if you do buy one of the machines, then at checkout, there's a little drop-down. You can select Late Night Linux, and they'll know that we sent you to them. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. On to a bit of admin then, and thank you everyone for spotting us on PayPal and Patreon. Um, Patreon's declined a bit, but we've had a few new people, I don't know. Um, check out latenightlinux.com slash support for a link there, and remember that you can get an advert-free feed if you sign up for $5 or more on Patreon. And uh, latenightlinux.com slash contact if you want to get in touch with us. Now, I should have plugged this last time, and it's getting very, very close now, but... Foss Talk Live is coming up on the 8th of June, which is under two weeks, I think, when you're listening to this. So this is at the Harrison in King's Cross in London, and it's an evening of Linux podcasts. It's going to be Ubuntu podcast, ours, Linux lads, and then the mashup show with Dave, Mary, Stuart, and me. And uh, who knows who else might come. But either way, it's just an excuse to get together in a pub and just get really drunk. Now, in previous years, the pub has opened at 5 o'clock, I think. But I think I was looking the other day, and it looks like they're open at 12 or 1 
now. Oh, dangerous, dangerous. Yeah, so I need to follow that. I meant to, I've just this second realised that I meant to phone them up or email them and find out about that. But, um, well, there's plenty of other pubs around there within walking distance anyway. So, yeah, um, come. And uh, even if you haven't got a ticket, a couple of people have um, cancelled their tickets. And if you have got a ticket and aren't going to come and cancel yours so someone else can have it, but even if you haven't got a ticket, just turn up and you can probably get in. Tickets are really just there to make us feel better, make us know that someone's going to come and we're not going to be talking to an empty room. But um, <laughs> yeah, do do come. Should be good fun. And uh, there'll be recordings from that hopefully shortly afterwards. So I want to talk about 32-bit Linux. Now, the reason that I want to talk about that is a friend of mine phoned me up and said that her laptop wouldn't boot the other day and I was like what um, try doing this try doing that okay right I'm gonna have to come over so I get there and um, the lights come on but it just wouldn't post and so I went through a process of elimination took the hard drive out and everything it ended up that the battery was the problem because she just sits there with it plugged in all the time and never runs it off battery it just completely fucked the battery to the point where it wouldn't post never mind boot so I took the battery out problem solved and I'd never seen that before so uh, that was a learning experience but anyway, she had this old 32-bit Atom netbook, which is an Acer Aspire 1. And um, it's a, a Z520 Atom with 2 gigs of RAM. Um, I put an SSD in it. Funnily enough, I bought an SSD. I bought a Kingston SSD. And um, it just wouldn't boot from it. It was weird. Like, it would install Linux to it and everything. Um, and then it just wouldn't boot from it. And so I was like, what the fuck? So I then put another SSD in it from another machine and it booted fine from that. So again, never seen that before. It's like some Twilight Zone shit. But anyway, um, so it got me thinking, well, what can you actually do with a 32-bit machine? And um, the answer is not much, unfortunately. I've got this other machine which is a Dell Inspiron 1300, which is also 32-bit only, but it's just huge. It's this huge, chunky thing. And so the plan for this netbook was, I like to have like a really shitty old machine to try out old distros and just to have some reference hardware for this is what hardware used to be like rather than my fairly modern i5 or whatever. Um, and so it was meant to replace it, but now I'm not so sure having... Um, actually played with this for a bit. So, you two, what would you do with a 32-bit machine apart from throw it in the bin? I'd take it out to the Wii recycling place and have them take it apart and put it in the bin. That's the same thing. Come on, if you you can't think of any useful function for it. I use 32-bit machines. I use pies all around the house, and they're 32-bit machines. They monitor my heating, my heat pump, uh, weather station... Uh, I use them for my uh, TV stuff uh, using, what's the name of it? Cody. No, not the Cody. The other one. Open Alec and Cody. And uh, and I use it for a webcam or security cam outside to monitor the car so it's not set on fire or something <laughs> like that. Uh, that is what you can use 32-bit processors for, like single function. Uh, they are not general purpose machines and they shouldn't be. Those days are gone. Well, Graham, you suggested trying some emulators on it. Because I, was, I mean, I should say that I tried to install Zubuntu on it and 
It was just fucking hopeless. <laughs> oh my God. It's something that was like, even it couldn't <laughs> stoop to that level, could it not? <laughs> oh yeah, here we go. Whatever. Um, yeah, it just, it was hopeless. I mean, you could potentially go a bit lighter. I don't know if Lubuntu with LXQ would be lighter, maybe a bit, but ultimately your applications are just not going to run very well once you get to that level of hardware. And so... I thought, well, okay, as a general purpose browsing machine, you're better off with a Raspberry Pi. I think that's going to be the, the returning theme of this segment is, yeah, you're better off with a Raspberry Pi. And uh, so there's this thing called Batocera, which is a Portuguese distribution, which is pretty lightweight and has all the emulators pretty much in it. And it's amazing. I heard about this on the Ubuntu podcast. Popey was talking about it. So I thought I'll give this a go. They've got, I think they've got versions for the Raspberry Pi and various other single board computers, but they've got a 64-bit and a 32-bit version. So I've got the 32-bit version and booted it from the USB stick on a fairly low-end um, i3, and everything was absolutely perfect on that, as you'd expect. And what it does is it creates a second partition or like expands a second partition um, where you can put your ROMs on it. So you just copy them into the relevant folder and then the emulator that you need for it, so in my case Mega Drive, just shows up once you've done that. And so I was there playing Mortal Kombat and Sonic and everything just worked perfectly. So um, yeah, Batocera uh, is well worth checking out. And yeah, digging through the menus just happens to also have Cody installed so you can use it as a media player as well. So yeah, that is my tip. And you can just take that USB stick. It's persistent as well. And a controller, plug it into any machine ever, pretty much. Especially if you go for the 32-bit version, you can go for these old machines. But unfortunately, this shitty old netbook, it just wasn't having it. It was just like so clunky, even the UI. And then I started playing Sonic, and it was about one frame a second or something. And it was just <laughs> so unplayable. I think there must be some buggy graphics driver or something with this atom. It's all Intel, so I'm surprised by that, but... I don't know, I've got this um, Inspiron that I mentioned that's only got a gig and a half of RAM or something. That is a 32-bit processor, but it is um, a little bit faster. And it was perfectly smooth on that, Batocera. Does the battery work on that net netbook? The battery does work on it, yes. Okay, all right, because I have seen that weird thing where um, a battery was really old and disconnecting it suddenly made the machine work better. The touchpad wouldn't even work properly and things like that. Almost like it was trying to pull something on the battery and was complaining power management-wise or something. But uh, yeah, if it's working, then fair enough. I might have to try that then because it did seem a bit strange that it couldn't run these emulators and everything. Um, but yeah, I'll try that. Thankfully, it's old enough to have a removable battery. So <laughs> yeah, just clips out, no problem. Um, so what what else is left if you can't do... <laughs> vintage gaming and you can't use it as a desktop well you've got to use it as some sort of server right and so i installed um samba on it and configured that which is really easy to do easier than i'd remembered doing and that worked really well the only limiting factor is that it's got like really slow like g or n wi-fi so that's just not going to happen and the ethernet is only 100 megabit and it maxes it out but it's 100 megabit, fuck that. So really, the conclusion is that maybe vintage gaming, you know, emulators and stuff like that, but your mileage may vary. But otherwise, it's just not worth it. And it, it breaks my heart, man. Yeah, I have to say, I'm not surprised. I've kind of, 
I've kept my old laptops simply because, you know, lots, well, I've only got like two or three, but they were close to my heart. Like I had, I inherited a Dell Inspiron from, you know, early 2000s and had drive bay zip drives for it and everything. And (laughs) it sits there in the laptop bag and it weighs a ton. Um, and I'd really love to get it out and have an excuse to do it. But also the power, you know, if, even if you plug it in and leave it as a server, you're kind of doing yourself much better, you know, by just running a Raspberry Pi in terms of electricity consumption and stability. Well, I don't know. This um, netbook uses 65 watts maximum. That's what the power supply is rated at, which, okay, is quite a lot. A Pi runs, what, five? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. That's what you keep coming back to. If you run something ARM-based like a Pi or one of the rip-offs or whatever, it's just way less. So, I mean, I would say anything that was a desktop, forget about it because that's just going to use ridiculous amounts of power. But if it's a laptop, I, I don't know, can you really justify energy-wise and expense-wise buying something new? If you've got an old netbook like this sitting around and you want a very basic network storage device. That's why I'd say recycle it because at least something out of it might go to the right direction yeah so i mean that that brings us around to 32-bit linux then is there any fucking point these days no (laughs) raspberry pi (laughs) well no okay i'm talking about 30 by 32-bit i mean x86 32-bit is is there any wonder why all the disk drives have dropped it Oh, no, not really. I mean, uh, unless you have something that you just can't move off of, like some sort of weird, really old server running some horrifically proprietary software that you just can't get onto, like even a VM or something like that, and you're just stuck with it. I think that's the only area where, you know, you just are where you are. And at some point, it'll become so obsolete that it'll die. But I mean, otherwise, you can pick up so many cheap, even secondhand bits of kit or reconditioned bits of kit, or just go around to Popey's house. He has about 5,000 <laughs> ThinkPads, and I'm sure one of them could be bought off of him at some point. Yeah. But what about Debian and stuff? Is it going to get to a point where they stop supporting 32-bit um, x86? Because what well, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. So again, you know, that that's what it feels like at this point that... I, I went into this thinking, ah, it's going to be fine. It's going to be better than a Raspberry Pi for desktop stuff. It's not, believe me. Ubuntu Mate on a Pi 3B Plus kicks this is ass when it comes to performance. Okay, well, vintage gaming is going to be fine. No, again, that was just choppy. Maybe that's just this one particular machine, and maybe you will be fine with it. And then server-wise, but then it comes back to power. So there's just it just feels like it's just totally pointless at this stage yeah i think you're right and maybe it's all right for nostalgia and to remind yourself how things used to be but doing something productive with it i think the first 64-bit chip that i built in it wasn't a proper server but it was a server chassis with a 64-bit the the first one i could get my hands on in a company back when i worked in glasgow and i think that was 2005 maybe 2000 yeah 2005 so that's 14 years ago I think I think it's time 32-bit died. <laughs> My car's older than that, but I suppose when it comes to IT equipment, uh, you can't keep it going that long. Aye. Yeah, it's I just I went into this wanting to prove everyone wrong and say no, there is a point to 32-bit. Mm. It's fine. You can do loads of cool stuff with it, but you just can't. And maybe I got unlucky. I don't know because the, the form factor of this netbook is so nice. It's um, I think it's like a ten. 
inch. No, it can't be a 10 inch, but it's it's fairly big for a netbook. It's got a the keyboard that goes completely edge to edge on it. So it's quite a comfortable keyboard to type on. It's got a 720p screen. It's actually really nice, but it's just horrendously slow. I, I feel like somehow ripping the innards out and putting a Raspberry Pi in it mm. or something, that, that feels like it would be a better way to go. Yeah. I'm kind of sad that the netbook form factor's gone away. I used a Samsung NC10. Actually, is like a work laptop when traveling and loved it. It was great for, you know, hacking about on the command line. I wonder how that feels now if I was to go back to it, because I think that only had a gig. Yeah, well, probably terrible. I mean, you've got the GDP pockets and everything, which are pretty much the same yeah. form factor, and there's a few companies doing those, but that's pretty niche at this point. Um, otherwise, but the thing is with those Ultrabooks, like in XPS 13 isn't that much bigger and it's so much more usable yeah yeah as long as you don't get a 4k screen in which case you just hate your eyes well yeah i mean that's just ridiculous you just don't want to run it off battery if you get one with a 4k screen but um yeah i don't know well this should have been fun but unfortunately it wasn't but the really annoying thing is that that inspiron 1300 actually works fine for the gaming and um so I wish I could use that. I'm going to have to do more investigations. There has to be a way to run emulators on this. And it's a nice portable little thing that I can run emulators on. I just can't bear to throw things away or recycle them. I'm just such a hoarder. But, uh, <laughs> I don't know. If anyone wants it minus a hard drive, then uh, get in touch, latenalinux.com slash contact, and I'll give you it. But uh, otherwise, yeah, it's going to have to just go on Gumtree or something for a quid. Right, well, I suppose we'd better get out of here. Then the next episode, I think, if my calculations are correct, is going to be the one that we record at Fostalk Live. So I fail him, you won't be there because you'll be being deafened by some old men pretending to rock out. Hey, I can rock out too. Yeah, well, you'll fit in well there, won't you? It'll be a lot of old farts who are fucking half deaf. I don't know. Huh? Metallica were never <laughs> very good anyway. Fuck him. I'd much rather go to Fostalk Live than Metallica. But it's probably about the same price to fly over and stay in a hotel as it is to fucking yeah. see them on your doorstep. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. At least when Mastodon supported them, that was worth going for Mastodon alone. But um, anyway. Right. So, uh, yes, we will be back next time. We'll be back for a proper show in a month. But don't worry, the uh, Fostalk Live one will be amazing. It'll be hilarious and informative and the best show ever. <laughs> And we'll have the election results by then as well. So <laughs> that won't be depressing at all when Farage and Co. win. Anyway, right, uh, let's get out of here. Um, until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. And I've been Graham. See you later. Bye.